Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Jump in. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that... um, you desire to speak to us, that you have communicated throughout the ages, and that in this moment you want to communicate something to us as well. And we're grateful for that. And we just say that our hearts are open, we are listening, and we want to receive. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Church on the Rock exists for a really specific purpose. Church on the Rock exists to um, develop people who love, live, and lead like Jesus. That would be our simple purpose statement. That's why we exist as a church, to develop a particular kind of person. That person is the kind of person who uh, loves, lives, and leads like Jesus. And we do that primarily through preaching the message of the gospel. And if you've heard the term the gospel before, that probably means you grew up in church or around church. It's an interesting term, and maybe in your background growing up, you've often heard the gospel referenced, and if I ask people what the gospel is, the simple gospel message, if you were to reduce the gospel down to its irreducible minimum, what is the message of the gospel? And most often, I would get a response that is something like this, the gospel is Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. That's the message of the gospel. That's the good news is that Jesus came, that Jesus uh, was born into our world, that he lived a sinless life, that he died in our place, and that he was resurrected from the dead. If you were to give the simple gospel message, that is the simple gospel message. But I actually don't think that is the case. In fact, there's a specific reason that I don't think that's the case, because in Mark chapter 1, and this happens actually in several places in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John telling the story of the life of Jesus. But in Mark chapter 1, this is what it says, picking it up in verse 14, Mark 1, 14. Now after John, John the baptizer, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So if the gospel is Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, then what gospel is Jesus preaching before his death, burial, and resurrection? What gospel is Jesus proclaiming if he's missing three-quarters of the gospel? What is Jesus coming into the world and proclaiming in this moment? The word gospel, euangelion, is the Greek word for it in the New Testament. It simply means good news. So when you hear someone say, I want to tell you the good news of the gospel, it's like saying, I want to tell you the good news of the good news. Because the word literally translated is good news. But here's the interesting thing. It's not actually a New Testament phrase or a New Testament word. It actually finds its roots in the Old Testament. In some passages that maybe would be familiar to you if you heard them, you can go to the next slide, guys. Gospel, euangelion, means good 
news, and it finds its roots in an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 52, verse 7, if you want to take a look there really quick. And by the way, all the things I'm about to share, I will highlight at the end on a one-slide recap. Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. It's the same word, except for it's the Old Testament version, the Hebrew version, basar is the word, who publishes peace. Now listen to what the good news is. Who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, here it is, your God reigns. If you were to state simply the good news, the good news doesn't actually begin in the New Testament. It actually begins at the very beginning of the book, and the good news is this, that God reigns. He always has reigned. From the creation of the world to this very moment, he has been in control in the world. In fact, um, the story of the gospel, if you were to tell it as a story, I would break it down to eight chapters. Eight chapters in the story of the gospel. In chapter one in the story of the gospel, and this is what I grew up sort of hearing, um, if you want to present the gospel to somebody, you want to lead them to salvation, um, there's a pathway you can use, and it's known as the Romans Road. Anybody ever heard of the Romans Road? And the Romans Road, the good news of the Romans Road begins, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I've got some really good news for you. You are a wretched sinner. That's where the good news begins in most of the gospel presentations that I've heard over the years. But that isn't actually where the story begins. The story actually begins in the greatness and the goodness of God. The greatness and the goodness of God. And there's some things you need to know about God in order to understand the story of the gospel. And there are things like this, the sovereignty of God, that God is completely in control, that he is in charge of everything. He is not threatened by anyone or anything. We actually looked at it last week in the story that Daniel tells in the King Nebuchadnezzar, and it dawns on Nebuchadnezzar at some point that he is not the sovereign over all the universe, that he doesn't create by his own hands, and he looks and recognizes that God alone is that, that no one challenges his authority or the self-sufficiency of God, that he doesn't actually need anything. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, take a look at this one if you're wondering. Acts chapter 17, if I can find it in my Bible here. It used to be in my Bible. There we go. Acts 17, picking up in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Not only is God sovereign, he's completely in control, but he's also self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He's quite content all by myself. That God is completely self-sufficient. He's also holy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, he's described like this, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Or so be it. That God is not only sovereign, he's not only self-sufficient, but he's completely set apart. He's other. While it's fair to say that we were created in his image, that does not mean we are exactly like him. He alone is holy. He alone is right or righteous. And he knows everything. And so if God is sovereign, completely in control, if he's self-sufficient and he doesn't need anything, and if he's holy or sinless or completely set apart, then why in the world did he create us? Have you met us? Like if he knew in advance everything that we were going to do, all the decisions we were going to make from Adam and Eve all the way to this moment in your life and in my life, why did God create us? I mean, he wasn't sitting around in heaven thinking, I am so lonely. If I just had some humans to disobey me, my life would be complete. Right? Like, like for what reason would he have created, which brings me to the goodness of God. Because as I've thought about it over the years, the only thing that makes any sense ultimately is that God is extraordinarily, exceptionally good. In fact, in Psalms 34 verse 8, it says this, Oh, taste and see, discover that God is good. Blessed is the individual who finds their refuge in him. The only thing that makes any sense to me as I've thought about it over the years is that God created for the sheer joy and pleasure of lavishing his love on that creation and displaying his glory to the hosts of heaven. He didn't need anything from us. He is sovereignly and completely in control. He could have whatever outcomes he desired. And yet the only thing that makes any sense when you think about the creation is that this God, for the sheer joy and pleasure of lavishing his love on his creation, decided to create. And he displays his glory to all the hosts of heaven as a result. Now, in light of the goodness of God, this brings me to chapter 2 in the story of the gospel, which I refer to as the tragedy of sin. You think about the world that God created, and he places in that world man and woman, Adam and Eve, It's a perfect world. In fact, by the time he creates Adam and Eve, he looks at it and he says, this is like this is exactly what I wanted. Adam and Eve have a purpose. They are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the world and rule it well. They have a garden to care for. God has given them responsibilities. He's given them a mission and a task in the world. It's a sinless world. It's a painless world. It's a world in which all is right in the world, literally. And in this world, God places two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Eating from the tree of life, they live eternally in right relationship with God. But there's one tree in all of creation that God says, do not. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God knows in advance. His omniscience, his all-knowingness tells him that He knows the decision Adam and Eve will make. And how many of you have ever wondered, like, why in the world did he put the tree in the garden to begin with? Like, he could have saved us a lot of heartache. And yet the reality is, I believe both trees are a gift to Adam and Eve. The tree of life is the gift of eternal life in relationship with God. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the gift 
of choice. Because in the absence of choice, real relationship cannot exist. If you do not have a choice but to, real relationship doesn't actually exist. And what God desires for his creation is real relationship that Adam and Eve could experience. Now, he doesn't need 10,000 trees of the knowledge of good and evil. He didn't make the fruit look like the fruit of every other tree. He made it really simple, but all he needed was one command in order to provide the opportunity for real relationship through obedience. And if you've read the story before, you know that Adam and Eve end up choosing disobedience. And here's the crazy thing. When you look at the tragedy of sin, because tragedy of sin is this, that it is always rooted in rebellion against God. When you and I sin, we sin against God. We can offend one another. We can hurt one another. But when you're talking about sin, sin is actually only committed against God. And sin, ultimately, at the end of everything, is rebellion against God. Not only is it rebellion against God, but sin is rooted in the desire to be like God. In fact, it's the very temptation that Lucifer experiences, we're told later, when he's in heaven and he wants to establish himself up to the same position as God is in. He wants to be like God, and that's how Lucifer ends up falling from grace in the presence of God. And it's the same temptation he brings to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, oh, God's actually afraid of you eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like him. And that scares God. Sin is not only rebellion against God, but sin is also rooted in a desire to be like God. It is to this very day. It's when we want to take control of our own lives. We want to be our own God. We want to be our own Savior. We want to be our own sovereign. But sin ultimately is rooted in the desire to be my own God. And the last thing is that sin is always an insane choice. You think about the Garden of Eden, and in light of all the goodness that God has provided for them, in light of relationship with him, the opportunity to walk with God face-to-face in the garden each and every day to have unhindered, unfettered relationship with the sovereign God of all the universe in a perfect and painless world. When you look at it in light of that, this choice to sin, rebellion against God, is an insane choice. And it is for you and me also. Sin is rebellion against God. It's rooted in a desire to be like God. And ultimately, it's an insane choice in light of who he is and what he has done. Which brings me to chapter 3, because at this moment in the garden, something happens to humanity. We have now gotten literally a taste for evil. We refer to it as the depravity of man and woman, just to be clear. It's this bent towards sinful behavior. And if you don't believe it exists, you're probably not a parent yet. It doesn't take long at all before you discover that selfishness and anger and rage, all of those things show up in the life of little humans much more quickly than we ever thought that they should or would, and we discover that it carries on for the rest of our lives. In fact, um, I have a picture, actually my father-in-law has a picture of our son, Caleb, um, when he was really young, about five or six years 
old, and um, we're at a pastor's house in Michigan, in an Amish community, nonetheless. We're doing a conference there for parents and teens, and we're at the table, and one of the pastor's kids reaches over, I believe, to get something off of my son's plate, like to steal a french fry or something. And my son proceeds to stab him with his fork in the hand. And the picture is my son like this. And the kid is like, like he caught it at the perfect moment. But what I've realized is that selfish behavior, right, anger, all of those things show up rather quickly in our lives because we're all prone towards, we have a bent towards sin as a result of what happened in the garden. In fact, Paul describes it in this way, and this is such a great revelation. It's found in Romans. By the way, how many of you brought a real Bible with you? Nice, well done. How many of you had to wheel it in on a cart? Yours is so, no, I'm just kidding, okay. Romans chapter 5. This is what, I'm sorry, Romans 7. <laughs> Let's do Romans 7 this time. Romans chapter 7, verse 14 and 21 through 24. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Anybody? Well, you can show your hand because it's, uh, yeah, okay. Paul was a pretty great guy, and that was his issue. I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. This is the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament. And he's recognizing that there is a war that is raging within me. I want to do the right thing. I really do love God, and I love God's word, and yet I find this battle going on within me. I want to do the right thing, but I don't do the right thing. And it happens over and over and over again. And he goes on to ask the question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Like, is there any way for me to be saved from myself? Romans 5, verse 12, references the Garden of Eden and then references the person of Jesus. Romans 5, 12, For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It all began with Adam and Eve in the garden forfeiting right relationship with God. In fact, when God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, it isn't strictly a punishment. The curses had already been meted out. God had said, this is what it's going to be like in childbearing. This is what it's going to be like to toil in the ground. He isn't sending them out of the garden as a punishment. He's sending them out of the garden as a protection. Because literally what is stated is if they were to remain in the garden, they could eat from the tree of life and live forever with the knowledge of good and evil, and they would become more and more and more and more corrupt over time. And it's God's way of protecting them from the effects of sin. Adam and Eve have made a decision that has severed right relationship with God, and we cannot enter into his presence in the same way that they could. And from that moment all the way until the moment that Christ comes on the scene, there is a barrier between God and his creation. 
which brings me to chapter 4, the perfection of Christ. There are a couple of things you need to know about Jesus that I didn't really think I understood when I was younger. In fact, it wasn't until not that long ago that I really came to this realization. Jesus is a real man. Have you ever seen Superman? Yeah, my girls, I don't know why, um, but they are enamored with the 1970s Wonder Woman shows. One of my daughters calls her Underwear Woman. That's <laughs> like, yeah, that's a practical fighting outfit. Uh, they're, but they're so intrigued. And, and here's the thing. I often think about Jesus as sort of, the, I know he was in our world, and I know he experienced what our world experiences, but all he needed to do was go into the phone booth and then come out and, oh, he's really super. Not like really going to sin. He's actually uh, not vulnerable to the same things that I'm vulnerable to. But that's not at all how the scriptures describe Jesus. In fact, in Hebrews, this is how it describes him and his relationship to us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, and here it is, in, what's that word? Every, which is a lot. I don't know if, okay. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or substitution for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is also able to help those who are being tempted. Now, there's something you need to know about temptation. It is only temptation if it's tempting And Jesus was tempted. In other words, he had desires for things that were contrary to God's desire, which in and of itself is not sinful. Giving into those desires is. But Hebrews makes it abundantly clear on numerous occasions that it was essential that Jesus experienced what you and I experience and yet chose not to engage. He's tempted in every respect as you and I are tempted. That had to be the case. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a faithful and merciful high priest for you and I. And all of a sudden you realize, well, this is a lot more extraordinary than Superman surviving getting shot at. The temptation is real. It actually exists, and yet Jesus, in his humanity, chooses never to give in to the temptation. I'll give you an example, just in case you're still wondering whether this is actually true or not. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. The moment's coming when he's going to lay down his life, and as he's praying to his Father there in the Garden, these are Jesus' words. If there is any way, here's my desire. Let this cup pass by me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The extraordinary thing isn't that Jesus actually never had a desire contrary to the Father's. The extraordinary thing is that he never once submitted to his own desire and every time submitted to the desire of the Father. Jesus was a real man. In fact, in Hebrews 4, verse 15, this is what it says. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, and here it is again, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is a really important part, the without sin part, because in the first Adam, in the Garden of Eden, that Adam was tempted and chose sin. And as a result, our relationship with God had never been the same since then. In fact, no one could approach God on their own merit, by their own righteousness. After Adam, and by the way, Adam and Eve were the only two people who actually had their own righteousness. There was no sin. And all the way from that moment until the moment when Jesus comes into the world, We have not had a person who, by their own merit, could approach God freely and ask whatever they wanted from him. In fact, in Romans 5, verse 19, this is what it says, For by one man's disobedience, Adam, in the garden, for by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Which brings me to chapter Five in the story of the gospel, which is the process of substitution. And the process of substitution is an interesting account throughout much of the Old Testament, but it actually begins in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sin and they recognize that they're naked, right? And, and the Lord comes to them and he says, who told you you were naked? And they're like, well, we ate from the tree. There was no shame, there was no guilt prior to that moment, but in that moment they discovered that they had been actually disrobed. They were wrapped in robes of righteousness prior to that, sinlessness, and now in this moment they recognize that that is gone, and God covers them with animal skins. The first sacrifice, the first death we hear of in the scriptures is in relationship to sin entering the world. And now Adam and Eve have been covered with these sacrificial skins. And if you were to track forward from Genesis there all the way to the time God gives the law to the children of Israel as they're leaving Egypt, you discover that sacrifices have been necessary as a substitution. But there's one sacrifice in particular known as the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement is found in Leviticus 16. If you're an Israelite, This is the best day of the year. It's kind of like Christmas and winter solstice all wrapped up in one. Like, I don't know if you know this, but we've gained over two hours of daylight since December the 21st till now. We're on the right side of the sunny things. Like, and, and, but the day of atonement for Israel was this day they were looking forward to every single year because on that day, all the sins of the nation would be covered. Up until that moment, they had been offering sacrifices. They had been doing things for right relationship with one another and right relationship with God. But on this day, all sin is covered. And so there was a buildup to the Day of Atonement. And as they built up to it, they were fasting and they were praying. They were trying to make sure they confessed everything that they had done wrong in the year. How many of you know that would take a minute for some of you? Like, and they're getting ready for the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, God gives really explicit instructions for what that day is supposed to look like. On that morning, the high priest gets up. And the high priest goes and offers a bull for himself. He makes a sacrifice for himself. And the reason is because he's not sinless. He also needs to have his sins covered. And so he offers this bull for himself and for his sons who are going to help in the service of the temple. And once they're cleansed and ready to go, now they can offer sacrifices for the people. And there are four characters that show up on the Day of Atonement. 
there's the high priest, the one who is going to make the sacrifice for others. And then they bring two goats to him. This is really intriguing because um, the two goats represent two different things. And the way they're going to decide which one plays which part is by casting lots. They're going to roll the dice. And one of them is going to become the sacrificial goat. And the other one is going to become known as the scapegoat. Heard that term before? The sacrificial goat and the scapegoat. And so once they identify those, the scapegoat has a scarlet thread tied around its neck so they remember which one it is. And they bring the scapegoat to the high priest. And the high priest takes his hands, he lays it on the head of the scapegoat, and he confesses all the sins of the nation, symbolically placing them on the scapegoat. And then the priest is instructed to take that goat, put a leash on it, and lead it, it just says, a great distance outside the camp into the wilderness and let it go. There's some stories told about times they let the sheep, you know, the goat go and it returned to camp like several days later, found its way back and everyone freaked out because like, our sins are back upon us. But the idea was that all the sins of the nation had been placed on this goat and they had been carried away. That you had been separated from your sin as far as the east is from the west that the sin was no longer here in the camp on us, but they'd been placed on this scapegoat, and the scapegoat was the one who carried our sins away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. And then he would take the second goat, and he would place his hands on the head of the second goat, and he would confess the sins of the nation on the second goat as well. And then, unlike the scapegoat, it would have its throat slit, and they would collect all the blood from that goat and begin the process of covering everything in the blood. Like they would sprinkle it on the people. How would you like that? You showed up on a Sunday. Hey, it's Atonement Sunday. I'm just sprinkling blood out into the crowd. Some of you would love it. Some of you would hate it. Uh, but, but they'd sprinkle it on the people. They'd sprinkle it on the priests. They'd sprinkle it on the altar. They'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Everywhere. It was a bloody mess on that day. But what this one represented is that not only have your sins been separated from you, but they have also been covered over by the blood. Your sins have been covered by the blood, and they've been carried away by the scapegoat. They're as far as the east is from the west from you. So it was the high priest, there was the scapegoat, and there was the sacrificial goat on this day. And then the fourth character in all of this is the one that it's all being done for, which is the sinner. You know who the sinner is, right? (laughs) It's you. Now, here's the crazy thing. In the story of the gospel, When you look at the life of Jesus and you look at the account of who these four characters are in the New Testament version, you discover rather quickly, especially in the language of places like Hebrews, that the old sacrificial system was insufficient for the sin problem in the world. And what you discover ultimately is that the high priest now is Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what Hebrews 10 verse 1 tells us. It says that the old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come. Not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came 
to worship. They were insufficient for the task. And so in Hebrews 5, 5 through 6, we discover that Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We don't have time to get into Melchizedek and his eternal existence and all of those sorts of things from the Old Testament. But here's what he's simply saying is that Jesus, Jesus is now the high priest. And he doesn't die like other high priests die. He is eternal, which means he can eternally offer sacrifice for you and I. And here's the interesting thing. Jesus isn't just the high priest, but Jesus is also the sacrificial goat. He is the one who dies in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says it like this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for everyone. That he has shed his blood, and by his blood our sins are covered over. But here's something really interesting, because there were two goats offered on the Day of Atonement. And Jesus is coming down to the waters to be baptized, ultimately by John the baptizer, who happens to be his cousin, in case you didn't know that. And as John sees Jesus coming down to the water, it dawns on him in that moment. And John makes this declaration as Jesus is coming down to the water. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, if you're a Jew, you're wondering which one. And listen to what he says. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who carries away the sin of the world. As soon as Jesus comes up out of the water and the Lord speaks over him, he is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. Any Jew reading this passage recognizes Jesus is the scapegoat. He's exactly what Isaiah declared that he was. He's the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He separated us as far as the east is from the west from our sin. Not only is the blood of Jesus covering over our sin, but the person of Jesus has carried away our sin. We have been separated from it. Jesus is the high priest, and Jesus is the scapegoat, and Jesus is the sacrificial goat. He plays all of the parts in the Day of Atonement, but it gets even better than that if you're wondering how good the good news is. Because in the Old Testament, it was all done for the sinner. But in the New Testament context, not only is Jesus the high priest, not only is Jesus the scapegoat, not only is Jesus the sacrificial goat, but Jesus also takes your place and my place as the sinner. In fact, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, this is what it says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Don't misunderstand, Jesus never sinned, but Jesus stood in your place as the sinner and took it on for your sake and my sake. Which I think we kind of hate because we really like to be our own sinner. We think if I feel bad enough long enough, I can feel bad enough long enough and be good enough long enough that God will finally forgive me for my sins. And the truth is that will never happen because it was already satisfied in the person of Jesus. He actually plays all the parts in the Day of Atonement and provides for you and I this full and vibrant picture of what it means to be redeemed. 
Not only did he separate us from our sin by carrying it away himself, but he also covered our sin with his own blood. He also stands in as our high priest forever, and he took our place as a sinner. It's all about Jesus. Which brings me to chapter 6 and the story of the gospel, which is the impact of redemption. Running from versus running towards. When you look at the scriptures and you look at the description of what happened when Jesus died on the cross, what you'll discover is that it's all in past tense language. In fact, one of my favorite passages in the scriptures is found in Colossians. It's in Colossians chapter 2. If you've never really spent much time in it, you should. Um, It is a truly extraordinary passage. But Colossians chapter 2, I'll pick it up in verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you need to know the work of the cross is a historical reality. It already happened. And in that moment on the cross, what is accomplished is that all sin for all time has already been paid for. And the belief that my good behavior could somehow pay my debt is actually known as self-righteousness. No matter how well-intending it is, it's the belief that my good behavior could somehow make up for what Jesus lacked in his work on the cross. And when Jesus says the words, it is finished, That's exactly what he means. That all sin for all time has already been paid for. And what it means to come into relationship with God or to be saved is that you would actually just acknowledge that you would believe by faith the reality that God has already declared over the world, over you, and choosing not to believe the reality that he has already declared over the world is the thing that keeps you from relationship with him. But the belief that I could add to what Jesus has already accomplished at the core is self-righteousness. Because Jesus is the one who establishes my right standing before God. And there is nothing I can do to improve on that. And so, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, says this, Let us then with confidence, maybe your translation says boldness, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help after we have been good for a while. Now, when are we supposed to do it? In our time, of need. When do you need grace and mercy? 
when you've been offensive, right? Like when I need to come and tell someone I'm sorry, what I'm hoping for, what I'm pleading for is a little bit of grace and mercy. The reality is that if you have fundamentally believed the message of the gospel, that I can't improve on the righteousness that Jesus freely gave me by faith, then when I find myself caught up in sin, when I find myself failing in some way, I should be running to God, not from him, which is very different than how we approach most of our relationships in life, right? You know that dad is really upset about whatever it was that you did or did not do. Maybe you didn't get home when you said you were going to be home, and the next morning dad is not happy about it, so you run from dad, not to dad. Right, You want to let him cool down a little bit. You want to let him simmer down a little bit. You want to be good enough for long enough that you can come back in the right relationship. But that is not how it works with God. That it is through the work of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone that you and I have been given right standing before God. And the most reasonable response to sin in our lives for the person who has believed the message of the gospel is to run to God, not from him, when we find ourselves failing and falling. It's not our natural tendency, but if you've actually fundamentally believed the message of the gospel that my righteousness is not my own, it came from Jesus, his willingness to play all the parts in my atonement, then I run to God, not from God in my time of need. And part of the reason we stay stuck in our sin for so long is we actually refuse to run to him. We believe that if I'm good enough for long enough, if I could just not look at that for two weeks, maybe God would think I was righteous again. He never thought you were righteous because of your good behavior. He's given us righteousness because of Jesus' behavior. And if I believe that, then I run to him, not from him in my time of need. Which brings me to chapter 7 in the story of the gospel, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Because I don't know about you, and it's maybe not true for most of you, I just find it really hard to be a good guy. Anybody else? Am I alone in that? I know that for Gary it's super easy, but most of us. Uh, like, I, and here's the thing. God has freely given righteousness to us, and he is freely giving his Holy Spirit to us because he's actually invited us to live the kind of life that he desires for us. Not to improve our righteousness, but actually to enhance our enjoyment. And so when the disciples are getting ready to take on the mission of Jesus, as Jesus is leaving the world, here's what he says to them. He says to them um, in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, listen, um, I'm going to the Father, I'm going to send the promised Holy Spirit, but here's what you need to know. There are a bunch of things you want to know that you don't actually need to know, but here's what you need to know. You need to know that until the Holy Spirit comes on you, until you are filled up with the power of the Holy Spirit, you should not dare try and accomplish my mission in the world because you actually don't have what it takes to do it on your own and you weren't designed to. And so not only does he provide salvation to us or righteousness, right standing before God through the person of Jesus, but he also wants to give you the power of the Holy Spirit so that you could live the life he's called you to live in the world that we find ourselves in. You were not left alone. And in fact, it's his exact declaration to his disciples who are terrified that he's going to leave them. What are we going to do without you, Jesus? You're the one with all the power. And here's what he says to them. Oh, no, 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 no. It's essential that I go away because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be everywhere, all the time, available to you. When you get 
saved, when you believe the message of the gospel, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's actually the only way you and I can be brought from death to life. But here's what I want you to know. He has more for you than just security that I was saved. I think often for many of us, we've just settled with that and we've missed the invitation to be filled in an ongoing way with the power of the Holy Spirit to be the people he's called us to be in the world. Which brings us to chapter 8 in the story of the gospel. The battle for sanctification, which is a super old word. And if you grew up in church, you've probably heard the term often, but quite simply put, sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's the process or the pursuit of holiness. This desire to live my life in a holy way. And I'll just tell you, to be entirely honest, whether it was my own understanding or it was what I was taught, the truth of the matter is, for most of my life, I actually believed that the pursuit of sanctification, the pursuit of holiness or holy living, was intended to improve my standing before God. That the holier I was, the more God loved me, or the more God accepted me. And I've discovered that that actually isn't the point of sanctification at all. And the reasons we pursue something matter. In Romans 12, Romans 12, picking it up in verse 1. We read this last week. In fact, I read the first part like 17 times in a row because it's so good. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is a way that God desires for you and I to live. I think in large part, currently in church culture, we've sort of shifted gears and we've said, He saved me, He accepts me just as I am. I can't improve on the righteousness of Jesus, and so it doesn't matter how I live my life. It actually couldn't be further from the truth. It actually matters. It just matters maybe for a very different reason than you thought that it did. Because here's what I've discovered over the years. The battle for sanctification, the battle for holiness in my life, is not intended to improve our standing before God. That's settled in the person of Jesus. Do I believe that what Jesus has done is sufficient? By faith, I enter into that relationship. I accept that reality he's declared over the world. It's not intended to improve my standing before God. It is designed to enhance my enjoyment of him. And why would you not want to enjoy him more and more and more? 
And the reality is the more I avoid the invitation to sanctification, the invitation to holiness, the invitation to live like Jesus would call me to live, it's actually the more I run the risk of ultimately concluding in my own heart and mind that maybe none of it's true, maybe none of it's real. But the reality is my righteousness is settled by Jesus' work and by faith I accept that. And the invitation to sanctification and holiness is actually about enjoying the relationship that has been offered to me. And if you find yourself wondering, why am I doing this thing? Why am I involved in all of this? Why am I trying to do the right thing? It's within reason. Maybe you haven't actually experienced relationship with God yet. In fact, I find that in the church currently, we're quite all right to just settle for less than what we were saved for. I want to invite you to stand I added one chapter to the story of the gospel because the more I've thought about this, I've thought, I think there are a lot of people who have never heard the full story of the gospel. I think if you were to reduce the gospel, the simple message of the gospel to its irreducible minimum, as simple as it could possibly get, this is it. It's called the Bible. It's the whole story of a good God who has interacted with humanity, with mankind, who has brought salvation and righteousness, offered the power of the Holy Spirit, and invited us into enhanced relationship with him and maybe you've never said yes to that maybe you fundamentally believed that it's your righteousness that makes you right before god and i'm just telling you if you haven't discovered it yet you will soon your self-righteousness is always insufficient for what in the depths of our soul we know god desires from us And Jesus is inviting you to just say yes to believing the reality that he has already declared over the world and then inviting the infilling Holy Spirit to provide the power for you to enjoy that relationship that was remedied through the life of Jesus with God the Father. So Jesus, in these moments as we lift our voices in worship, would you do the work that only you actually can. Would you bring us to that place where we accept by faith your finished work on the cross? And would you fill us supernaturally with the power of your Holy Spirit so that we could begin the journey of enjoying that relationship with you by becoming more and more like Jesus? And I ask these things in your name, for your glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.